Well, welcome to Megan Plurka Paradise Podcast, Lance Harrisinger. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you give us a biography about yourself? I certainly can. I was a social worker with the juvenile court uh, for 34 years, the first five years uh, in Los Angeles County and the rest uh, with San Luis Obispo County, which is located just about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. My first book, uh, In Place of Parent, Inside Child Protective Services, kind of walks the reader through the child welfare system as it evolved over my career, um, both the good and the bad. You know, In many ways, the system mm-hmm. improved, but in other ways, it didn't improve. And uh, the, even for professionals, what we call mandated reporters, uh, doctors, psychologists, teachers, et cetera, who are mandated to report child abuse, they understand the reporting obligations, but many don't understand what happens afterwards. So it's both to educate both professionals and just regular folks about the system. It was also uh, to make some changes about the system. In some ways, the system has gotten worse, or the overall is better, but there's some places where it has gotten very bureaucratic. And the other thing is I wanted to inspire people, encourage people to become foster parents or, or guardian ad litem. The system even before the pandemic, was stretched as far as uh, having foster parents. Um, it's A lot of people ask, well, why doesn't the system work better? The child welfare system works better if the child and foster parent and parent are all within a geographic proximity. The social worker is spending hours on the road getting child to parent or parent to child. That just is an inefficiency. The more foster parents we have, the better match between child and foster parent and just a, a question of efficiency because there's less driving involved. So much of the people that I dealt with, I dealt with the underclass of society. Almost every parent that came into the child welfare system qualified for a coin appointed lawyer. Occasionally there was exceptions and people would hire a private attorney, but that was very much, much the exception. And, and this is just a little aside. In some states, parents are not appointed attorneys, even if they can't afford one. It's considered huh. a school procedure. So you, you uh, say you have a DUI and your kid's in the car with you, your kid's taken away because of the, you had a child in the car with you. You get, a, you get a lawyer for your DUI if you're poor, but not if the uh, <laughs> child welfare system is taking your child because you're driving, you're endangering your child by driving drunk. So mm-hmm. that's, that's something that, like one of the things I want to change in other states. California, we already do that. We already appoint counsel. But I think that that's a, a travesty of justice that's not good for parents. The other thing is that uh, the, social, the child welfare system, the foster care system, is only one small sliver of the social welfare system. And uh, food stamps, cash aid, subsidized housing, school lunches, all those things um, sometimes get a bad rap out there. Um, and I think a lot of people think that people live on easy street and there's a lot of misconception about that. So I want to educate people about that. Um, and I also want to say what the limitations are, uh, mm-hmm. what government can do things to help people, but it has limitations. Um, and how one of the things that I think is um, impactful is so many of the men in my caseload were to use a very, I joke to use a very professional term, they were losers. You know, they may not have directly beat their child, but they had, uh-huh. they had a, a 
they were uninvolved in their child's life or they had a criminal background or they worked at the margin of society. There was exceptions, of course, but very many of them were not successful. And why are we producing so many uh, unsuccessful men in this society, in our society now? Um, boys are much more likely to drop out of school than girls. Women are much more likely to graduate from college these days than men. And that has an effect on uh, just the ability of, of, of people to, so men to support their children, whether they live with them or not. Um, and so I wanted to address some of those things in my second book, Build a Better Bridge, Social Policy for the 21st Century. So I wanted to go beyond uh, the child welfare system, beyond the social safety net the government provides and say, how is our largest society dealing with things? Um, for instance, I talked a little bit out in the book. I'm old enough to remember when ATMs were new, you know? Uh, <laughs> ATMs started when I was in college. Just about when I started college, ATMs started to become commonplace. Well, my sister used to be a teller. She was a teller for several years. But if you have so many ATMs being out there, that's fewer jobs for, for tellers, which are predominantly a female occupation. Roughly two-thirds two of tellers are women. But if you're automating society so much, your demand for tellers go, then what do those people do for a job? What would I, my sister have done? Uh, she was a teller 30, 40 years ago, 40 years ago. What would she have done if, if, that, if today to get to find a job, to find a decent paying job? Not that tellers make a lot of money, but it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a decent job at least. You know, and how, how much automation and these things and people tend to blame, blame politics for a lot of our nation problems and they're not they're just part of it is just market forces and, and technological um, advancement I draw a parallel um, San Luis Obispo the city I live in is very much we're dependent on tourism and the city has a couple of parking garages to accommodate both locals and tourists and the parking lot tenants were very nice people. They were always friendly. If you're, if you're local, you got to kind of see the same people uh, all the <laughs> time. But this, the city went to an automated system. Well, that meant people were out of work. Where are those people who had a, a job, like toll booth attendants? Those, those jobs have been eliminated in society. Where are they getting jobs now? The people who, you know, and that means more people are going to be dependent on sometime in their life on social welfare programs. Uh, the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, the, those 30 companies, used to be pretty stable. Rarely was a company mm -hmm. changed up until about the 1980s. Membership didn't change very much, very rarely. From roughly about the 1980s to you know now, membership changed fairly frequently. That means that people are changing their jobs. That means that there's disruptions in their lives because a company has merged with another company or been bought out or just overseas competition or whatever. And so it's harder now. It's harder because the economy is not as stable. It's not as secure. You don't have people generally who work from the same job to, you know, they graduate and they stay with the same company for 40 years. That's very, very much a rarity. That was always rare, but it's getting mm -hmm. more and more rare. And that we have to address that in our society. And so these are some of the things, these are some of the demographics that go beyond politics. We go beyond 
Democrats or Republicans or conservative liberals. As I wrote in, in my prologue, uh, neither liberals nor conservatives have a monopoly on good ideas or, or bad ideas. How do you let ideas <laughs> out there, right? Nobody has a monopoly on, on either, either good or bad ideas. And so I try to suggest some ways, understanding there's um, economics involved, but you don't want uh, you know, government spending to just from people don't want their money, government, tax dollars going out willy nilly. Uh, what can we do to uh, make this a, make America a better place? So that's why I wrote the books, because I wanted some changes in social policy. So are there any misconceptions about being a child welfare social worker in, 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 within the job? Well, I think when child welfare workers are portrayed in, in the media or portrayed in, in the fiction, they're, they're one of the two extremes, either uncaring or, or overworked. The overworked is probably a little accurate. <laughs> the uncaring is, not, <laughs> is usually not the case. Um, I think that people, the child welfare only gets in the news when we overreact or underreact. There's mm -hmm. uh, roughly about 200,000 children enter foster care each year. Huh. And then change data about that. How many of those incidences get in the news? Very, very few. So, you know, relatively speaking, we're not perfect. Child welfare system is not perfect by any means. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, a reasonable decision is made. And I think that's one of the things that I want to convey to readers that, you know, yes, the police aren't perfect, nurses aren't perfect, no, no possession, no profession has perfection, but the child welfare system generally makes good, reasonable decisions. So from your 34 years as a child welfare social worker, were there any specific, significant or unforgettable cases you, you encountered or you had? Well, I can't go into too much specifics because of confidentiality, mm -hmm. but I, I yeah. think that, um, let me talk to general. What, what, what type of cases you had? The type of cases? Yeah, or that you most of the time had, I guess. Better question. Well, I was uh, all for one year. I was what a, I worked with the courts. Um, so one year I did like emergency response and then the rest of my career, I was handled court cases of one type or another. So the vast majority of cases uh, don't ever go to court. They're resolved, hmm. they're resolved without court intervention because either they can't sustain any, sustain any abuse or neglect, or the family gets voluntary services. A lot of people, I think, are misconception. We do work with people voluntarily. Um, and very often that can be useful. The, the legal standard for a child to go into a foster care is fairly high. Um, as far as type of cases, um, under California code, there's what we call a 300E. That is a severe child abuse, physical abuse of a child under the age of five. Oh, wow. Uh, one of those cases, maybe one a year, one every other year. One year. You know, most, the vast majority of our cases, roughly two thirds would be neglect to drug abuse or substance abuse in general. Hmm. Is, I didn't know much about that before. I said I didn't know much about that before, like regarding the child welfare system and what type of cases you, you would encounter. 
And a lot of times we have cases that where the child is neglected, but not in a in a medical sense or an immediate sense, a sense of being like one of the cases I write about in my book. A woman goes to her neighbor, says, hey, could you watch my child? Neighbor, she doesn't know particularly well, but knows a little bit. She goes and says, would you watch my child for a couple hours while I do some shopping? The neighbor says yes, but the mom doesn't return. The child was never physically mistreated, but the neighbor is going, hey, what the heck happened here? Why didn't you return? <laughs> and, and there are very many types of similar cases, but very often, not very often, but one type of case is where the mother will just leave the care of children with her mother and then not return for a while, and the grandmother needs medical care to enroll a child in school and calls us. So there's lots of cases. I think that's one of the misconceptions is that all the cases means that some child has been brutalized. That's not the case. Huh. That's good to know, though, like about misconceptions like that, I think. Um, and just to clarify this a little bit more is uh, uh, there's 300E, which is for children under the age of five. There's 300A, which is physical abuse, any, ch any age. And the 300A cases, which is strictly physical abuse, would be very rare. Again, maybe once, one every. Huh. There may be something else that may be physical abuse and domestic violence, physical abuse and mental health, physical abuse and substance abuse. But to have just a case that was just physical abuse was very rare. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So what kind of laws are, should the federal government or even state and local government pass to ensure children can live safely with a good place to live? Well, I think a, a lot of one of the things that California has done uh, over the years is um, made it so that relatives, half the children go into placement, roughly half the children go into placement, go into placement with the relative. And now we've done the smart thing is those relatives have to have their home inspected. They have to have their fingerprints taken. Uh, we have to make sure that they're safe. Uh, uh -huh. it, it used to be there sort of an expression that was a race to the courthouse of which relative to get it. And the system says, no, let's wait. Let's hold off on this. Um, let's have some assessment process. It can all be done in one evening. Uh, ideally, huh. the child, uh, mothers are, say, arrested on a drug charge. The children uh, need adult supervision. They say, oh, would you take the kids to my mom? She's fine. And we go over to grandma's house and make sure that is physically safe and also just run grandma's record, grandpa's record, every other adult in the home's record. Um, so make sure that that's, that's, they're going into a safe environment. Because the worst thing would be to have a child removed and then go into uh, some, some other worst place that, where they were taken from. Uh, that, that has been one of the things that have been changed. And I think that that's certainly an improvement. As far as what the federal government does, I can tell you one thing that, that I wish uh, hadn't happened. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you one thing's positive first, and then I'll talk about the negatives. Um, when a children is, is removed from the home, if the parents are poor, which is most often the case, the relative, whether they're rich or poor, you can be Bill Gates, you know, it doesn't matter the <laughs> relative's income. Um, the, the relative is, or the foster parent is entitled to um, Federal foster care, uh, federal foster care rates. They can be paid. The relative can be paid um, as if they were a foster parent. 
Um, so the state, because of the federal money, and they're paid with federal money okay, to the states. Okay. Because of that, the federal government has set various standards um, regarding what states should do. You know, out of uh, a thousand children that are abused, how many are abused a second time within 18 months? You know, ideally you'd have, that should be zero, but that's mm -hmm. not always going to be, that's not going to be the case. It's not realistic. It's, but is it 1%, is it 2%, 3%? The federal government sets, sets that standard. It also sets standards for um, how often how often children are moved from foster home to foster home. How that gets defined has been changed over time. So they set, the federal government said, hey, states, these are these standards and we expect you to, you know, we're going to give you a report card on these standards, you know, every year. And if you don't meet the standards, you got to develop a plan. So that's the good thing that that's, the federal government has done. Has said, okay, we're going to standardize these things and we're going to set these good goals. The other thing that happened recently is the Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act. Now, the Indian Child Welfare Act says that if a child of Indian heritage is removed from, you know, from the home, priority must be given to an Indian family, a Native American family. Now, that's common sense. Yeah. That's just common sense. There was abuses in the system decades ago. And so there's this law that ICRA came out in the 70s. And in practice, though, that uh, is saying that the children belong to the tribe that the tribe can take jurisdiction if the child has a sufficient amount of Indian heritage. Um, and each tribe defines how much that is. Some tribes it's 50%, some it's 25%, some it's going to be uh, 1 32nd. Most it's like 25%, that'd be probably the most common. But that is saying that the children belong to the tribe. Well, in my opinion, children are not chattel. You know, back... Uh, under English common law, you know, you have the expression of, you know, a man's home is his castle. Well, that comes from the notion <laughs> that, that the king, the king in the castle, owned all the land except for what the people owned themselves. And that mm -hmm. the man's the dog, his cow, his horse, his kids were his chattel. And even the king couldn't take the chattel, you know. <laughs> you know, there's all things about, you know, did, if you're, if you're, if your uh, horse got onto the king's land, was it still your horse or did it become the king's horse? You know, but if we, if we say that children belong to the tribe when they are not at home, aren't we treating kids kind of like chattel? And there was a recent Supreme Court's decision, even with the uh, conservative court said, yes, the Indian Child Welfare Act is valid, even over the parents' objection of where they would like the child to be. You know, the, lots huh. of times, Parents, um, it's mostly moms, to be honest. She'll have a drug problem. She'll recognize it. She has to go into treatment. She says, oh, I'd like my child to live with so-and-so. And if so-and-so is, is safe, that's probably where the child should live. And ICWA says, no, uh, we can override that wish. And I think that that's harmful, and I think that's a, a travesty of justice. Good social worker practice is that you try to match children, um, with the racial identity, but in practice, there are very few African American foster homes. There are very huh. few Native American foster homes. There are very relatively fewer Hispanic homes. And so, 
matching is more of a, a nicety because you have to comply first with age and gender restrictions. A foster parent might be licensed uh, or they may only want to take girls or they only may want to take younger kids or older kids and you have their licensing requirements and you have geography. You know, you'd like to place a child close to the home. So that's one of the things that makes the system work better. Local. But if you say, okay, the child's going to go back to this Indian family or back to the reservation, that's harmful. Now that's a very, very, very small fraction of cases. Mm -hmm. My beef with the system is not only that I think sometimes in rare instances, children are treated like chattel, is that tremendous amount of effort is expended in researching whether a child has Native American ancestry. You come into court, your kids have been taken away, you want to know when you're going to see your child, and a social worker or a judge or an attorney or maybe all three ask you, do you have American ancestry? It comes across as, as a bizarre question. And uh, we have to have parents fill out these extremely, especially in California now, extremely detailed ancestry forms. And did, did you ever, did your grandfather or grandmother ever go to an Indian school? And those kind of questions. What? what was your grandmother's birthday? I don't, you know, <laughs> a lot of people don't know <laughs> the top of their birth. So this is just, and every hour spent on that is an hour not spent doing something else. There's only so many hours in the day. And I think if we did not have comply with ICWA, if ICWA were to disappear tomorrow, children would still be placed where they're usually normally placed, but there'd be more time for the social worker to do his or her job. And that's the one thing that I talk about is time. Social work is a time intensive job. There's a lot of just being in the moment with people, helping them to get the treatment, helping them to cheer them on, to you know, get them, uh, get them encouraged to do better and, and, and to congratulate them. A lot of times, some of my most gratifying moments in court have been said, hey, you know, uh, Jane here has, has completed, uh, and this is, of course, confidential in juvenile court. She's completed uh, three months of treatment, Your Honor. And, I, and it's, looks, things are looking good. And we're, we're hopefully we're going to have, and it's very powerful for Jane to hear mm -hmm. that social worker say that on the record in court. Um, and if you're busy talking about the New Child Welfare Act, you're, you're not you don't have an opportunity to say that. I mean, I didn't, I never knew about the matching like ancestry related like questions that they apparently ask in court. If, if that's what you're saying, right? Yes, yes, this is mandated. This each state um, child welfare is administered at the state level in most states. California being large, huh. we, we administer it at the county level, and how it hap how the actual questions are asked varies from county to county or from state to state. But in some manner, in some form, the parents are inquired whether they have Native American ancestry. And very often, as I write in my first book, if a parent says, the dad says, uh, I think I have Apache in my background, and the mom says, I think I have Cherokee, then we huh. have to send certified letters to all the different Apache tribes and all the different Cherokee tribes. What? Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's... That's interesting, and I mean, that's mind-blowing to someone like me. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the things where I, or my beef with the system is that, yes, there were some injustices done in the past, and those, but we're in the 21st century now, and we need to be realistic. And what, where do we really want to spend our time on? But again, that's just one sliver of the system. 
uh, when mm-hmm. most people think of the social welfare, they think of cash aid and, and food stamps and those big ticket items that are so much of our mm-hmm. budget. And uh, one of the things that I think, you know, these programs all started in the 60s, the war on poverty. And we now have millions more on poverty than we did in the 60s. The, the poverty rate is lower. It's in the low teens. is roughly around 11% of countries in poverty. Before all the war on poverty programs, it was in the high teens. So we've done that with some efficiency there, some good. But one of the fact, facts that not, liberals don't talk about it much, in fact, I don't think anybody talks about it much, is that one of the foundings in sociology is that poor people have more children. This is true in <laughs> industrialized countries and non-industrial in developing countries. Uh, mm-hmm. Women in America who have a college degree have a negative birth rate. They have, they have less oh. than two children during their lifetime. A woman who has a high school diploma that's more likely to have multiple children, three or more children. And that, and she is more likely to be, uh, you know, need social assistance of, you know, social welfare assistance of one form or another. Medical care for her children, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. School lunches for her children, things like that. And uh, that, is, that is very expensive. But especially if she hasn't graduated high school. If you haven't graduated high school, the chance that you'll need safety net of some sort is very, very high. One of the things I point out is that uh, a, a woman who fails to graduate high school, yes, she will likely have children she can't afford, more likely to, uh, you know, need, she'll be an economic, in cold economic terms, she'll be a, an economic drag on the taxpayer. The young man who fails to graduate from school is more likely to father a child who can't support and, mm-hmm. But he is also more likely to drift into criminal activity. His failure to graduate is a matter of public safety. Not yeah. just, you know. And so if we really want to deal with welfare and poverty, we got to concentrate on graduation rates of boys. Um, one of the things that particularly, I mean, if the uh, African American boys have a much lower graduation rate than white girls. Hispanic boys not graduate as well as Hispanic girls and so on. What can we do to, to help graduation rates? One of the things is to talk about it. You can't solve a problem if you haven't, you know, talked about it. So no. So one, of, one of the things I propose in my book is that school districts that get federal funding, which is virtually everyone, um, that they be required on their school district websites to post graduation rates by gender. And I think that would help to highlight the issue of, you know, boys not graduating as much as girls. In some of the um, uh, larger school districts, the dropout rates approaches 25%. In New York City schools and LA school district approaches sure. 25%. So this is really a, 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 it's an issue. Um, and then the other thing is, and it's a pet thing with me, I admit it's, it's not a panacea, it's not going to change the system a lot, but it, as I, again, I write in the book, we're not going to solve the nation's problem by one grand Apollo moonshot kind of thing. We're going to solve the nation's problem <laughs> by lots of small decisions. And one of the small decisions is, I think, 
to um, make English classes at least one year be nonfiction. Uh, one of the kids, what do kids say about school? They say school is stupid. That's one of the typical teenager answers, right? School is stupid. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. Sometimes they're right. If you, when I read The Great Gatsby when I was in high school, I thought it was stupid. I still think it's stupid. I don't think it really adds anything to my knowledge. That, um, same with The Old Man and the Sea. I thought, oh, I have to live, <laughs> live by a, a, you know, I did a lot of fishing as a kid. I go, the story didn't impress me at all. You know, it didn't enrich my life that much. Now, I'm sure people will disagree with that. I'm not saying we should throw out all literature. But I think that one of the things that, will help grad boys graduation rate is to have a year of nonfiction required because you ask teachers and by and large the boys will gravitate to stories about sports figures or national you know not, they gravitate more to the stories that are true um women buy 80 percent of the fiction that's sold so presumably high school girls like fiction a lot more than high school boys so we need to recognize this if we want this gender disparity, if we want to make a better society. Mm -hmm. so. so do you think politicians are advocate enough in public or in the districts and states for challenges within the child welfare system, such as family preservation, preservation and adoption? I, I'm sorry, they... I think basically politicians aren't aware of the details of most most programs. They have to be generalists, you know, uh, and they have to rely on the experts on uh, bridges. If they're talking about an allocation to build a bridge, they have to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they have to know a lot about. They're generalists about every government program. They can't know the nuances. I, I think that um, there is family preservation services. There are you know funds out there that we we try to help families um, divert them out of the child welfare system you know and you know save money in other words and there's money now there was a lot of money being spent on group homes and kids shouldn't grow up in institutions um, to help the system allow to support a family at home I had one uh, case where the, the it was a couple they were married which was unusual um, huh. four kids, um, and the kids came into foster care because of drug problems and domestic violence. The parents completed their drug treatment, but with their backgrounds, their wives had been so turned upside down, they really couldn't make it financially for a while, even though they were clean and sober. They needed some yeah. financial assistance. They needed help with first month's rent. They needed um, other financial assistance through the day to get the car working, that kind of thing. There's now money to say, hey, let's pay a few thousand dollars to help this family who's making progress and instead of having the kids be in foster care that's expensive or even a group home that's even more expensive so with some controls over how the money is spent the um or i should say controls over the money is spent, that we can support people and help them get over the hump and get them to be a productive citizens um, the same case kind of illustrates something to me, though, is that the mother was doing okay in her treatment. She was all right. But when she got a job that required some skills, she had worked at minimum wage jobs throughout her whole life when she was working. She got a job that required some skill. It doesn't pay a lot more than minimum wage. 
But the pride mm-hmm. was what took him work. The pride was what helped her um, get over the hump. And I think that that's the value of vocational training is very underrated. The pride that, that a, a man or a woman can get by being able to do something that other people can't do, whatever that is, you know, um, that that carries a lot of weight, and that that can help them be, be good parents because they feel good about themselves. So that's I think another place where the system should focus a little more on you know, getting people economically self-sufficient by having them with the training that that can lead to a decent job, if there's decent jobs out there, you know. Uh, our local college program has a welding program, and there was a uh, for many years there was a billboard on the major freeway here, you know, showing a woman, uh, very you know, not a guy, showing the woman with the welding hat. They changed it eventually; they put a guy up there too. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is a local economy that needs very little, there are very few welders. I doubt that you know. I, I really wonder how many welders are employed in the county. It's just not something that's you know. We have tourism and agriculture our big businesses here, and government. Uh, hospitals and prisons and things like that are what we have. So welders, even though the local community college will teach you welding, it may not get you a job. You know, that's one of the realities here. That's so interesting because, I mean, I went to a career, like a vocational school for two different types of careers, and it was, I mean, I had a good experience to say for vocational school, so. Well, I'm, it is good. It is good because it gives you a sense mm-hmm. of pride. I built this. Or I repaired this, and and I you know I make a point that even if you're if you're an employer and you look hey this person has completed a welding program I don't need a welder but I need somebody who's completed a program who's gone to school and can, can uh-huh. learn that demonstrates okay to me as an employer okay this this is a teachable employee and for my widgets that don't need a welder but we need somebody else to do that and so that's why I think that that's an important thing and I think. This comes up to one of the points of welfare, the welfare to work. You know, it, it sounds, um, in theory, it sounds great that, okay, you're on welfare, we're going to make you work as a condition of your, you know, getting, is getting the government dole. There's an exception if you're going to school. If you're going to school full time, you, you know, that's good. We want you to have a, a vocation that, that will get you off, uh, off the government uh, dole. Mm-hmm. It's only one year exception. One year, you're uh, not, you're not going to get a two year degree that will lead to a certification in, you know, uh, welding or a certified nurse's assistant or some position that will get you. So, is this really good use of taxpayer money to be a half measure here? To be a half uh, measure and say, we're only going to give you an exception for one year. Well, you can't really find much training in one year that's going to get you out of poverty. Yeah, I feel like that's true. I mean, I didn't really think about it that way, but yeah, that's that's that can be very much true in our in our society these days. So, and, and one of the things uh, that's true is uh, for most people is housing is their expense is the largest expense, and the price of housing uh, in San Luis Obispo, even with the recent increase of interest rates and everything. Is tremendous as opposed to a percentage of your your income. You know, the local paper will often say, "Hey, this is how many hours you'd have to work at uh, twenty dollars an hour in order to to buy 
buy a medium price home here, pay the mortgage on a medium price home. It's a ridiculous number and that kind of thing. <laughs> Why is what is driving the price? Lots of reasons, but one is demographics. Um, we have more people, as I as I've said to, in other podcasts. Uh, in my lifetime, the population of California has doubled, but has the size of California doubled? No. <laughs> you know? Uh, so you have uh, more people wanting subsidized housing. And what are we going to do to help people get into their first home? The FHA has this program, you know, 3%, you only have to have 3% down, but if you're buying a $600,000 condo, which is not unusual in San Luis Obispo, you know, that's a 3% is a lot of money for some, most people today. What's that, $18,000? Sure, I don't... <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I suggest in the book, again, anyways, is that, um, you know, you have Habitat for Humanity where people put in sweat equity. You, you have so many people help build their own homes. Habitat for Humanity, mm-hmm. right? But... One of the things I have with that is that they usually build only a couple homes at a, at a stretch. I saw a news program uh, about a Nashville a teacher. The teacher wasn't paid enough. She was the, to buy her own home. She had to get a home through the Habitat for Humanity program. She was helping to build her own home. Uh, that's kind of a sad reflection of future salaries. But, um, but can we have people then do some community service? In other words, you do so many hundreds of hours or thousands of hours helping your community, and that be your down payment for the house. Um, and and if you have, you know, income qualifications and make sure that you have it, uh, you know, a person has to keep up, keep the home and all the other uh, things you would have in a regular home deed and everything. Your bank says you must keep up the property if you get a convention, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And the other thing is like uh, in San Luis Obispo, uh, we had a little con- a little scandal or controversy here. The new superintendent of schools got a deal where the school district helped him with his mortgage. They like they gave him a oh yeah, okay and helped them because houses even being paid to superintendent schools it was expensive to find buy a decent home. Oh uh, okay. I'm all for that if everyone gets it. If the police officer gets yeah. It, if the school secretary. If everyone has this sort of shared equity program, I'm for it, you know. But to just give it to the superintendent, I, I think that's a problem. So, uh, relating to, like, the government and, like, or just political politics in general with, uh, like, uh, policy making and uh, controlling, like, and really controlling and trying to regulate the agent, like, the child, protect, the child welfare system, how important is it for... Uh, city, state, or federal government to provide money for child protective services, adoption services, as well as family support programs? Well, I think, you know, uh, the system runs on money, whether you're talking about the Forestry Department or the FBI or Social Security Administration, <laughs> you got to have money to make the system run. Um, and I think that one of the things uh, that's been in the news, there was in the news about a while ago about these for-profit group homes that were costing the government a lot of money and that they were poorly managed, that there were some abuse of some really, you know, not just isolated instances, but real patterns of problems. I think that the federal government should do what California has done and says, okay, we are not going to fund any 
a not, uh, any for-profit facilities for children's placement. That's mm -hmm. that, that would be the first thing. Um, I think that one of the things that they need to do as far as funding, let me just talk about it, is turnover. Like anything, experience helps with any job. Um, when I was first in uh, LA County, they, they did an odd thing with people in, in your unit, in your work unit. They didn't list the names alphabetically. They list them by seniority. So if the, huh. supervisor, the supervisor wasn't around, you went to the uh, first person on the list who had the highest seniority or the second person. After one year, I was uh, like in the middle of a pack of seniority. There was that much. <laughs> and oh. That's not good to have that much turnover. And one of the things that has been a beef for mine is how you handle after hours. Uh, in LA County, there was a special unit that handled after hours, that, you know, phone calls that come in. Because people, you know, people don't use their kids or neglect their kids during business hours. Those things tend to happen <laughs> on Friday and Saturday night uh, when the police get called to something. Those are our busiest times for the hotline, just the busy time for the police. Um, but in smaller counties, such as San Luis Obispo, uh, there's people who are on call, you know, so I would work a regular workday and then be on call like from uh, like workday 830 to 5 and then from 5 to 8 the next morning I was on call and would, would be the hotline worker or somebody if the police called or some mandated reporter or just a general concerned citizen they'd call and then would respond if, this, if whatever the person said was serious enough to want a response. But some, of course the phone didn't ring all the time. And so you're mm -hmm. on standby. While I was on standby, the pay was like two seventy-five an hour. And as I pointed out, my daughter at the time was in college. She was on standby with like a, a meal delivery service. You know, people sometimes wouldn't order, you know, uh, meals, but she had a she was on standby because somebody did. She was paid six dollars an hour. She was paid six dollars <laughs> an hour to be stand on standby uh, to deliver pizza and or whatever. And I was, uh, you know, two seventy-five an hour you know, picking up kids. And so it, it seems outrageous. So one of the bugaboos is that that will drive you know, people, especially kids with little children, they have to, they can't make it, the, the, you know, both financially and just uh, the demands of having after hours. This was, a, I think that the system needs to recognize the, the demands that after hours put on social workers. And if you're going to ask people to work through the night, going to work Saturday evening or work to Monday night when they work Monday or plan to work Monday and Tuesday, that you pay them decently. So if I understand you correctly, uh, after hours are like after like four o'clock or five o'clock in the evening, like maybe late at, late in the week or so, or any day of the week. Any day of the week, you know, like, you know, normal quitting time would be five o'clock and then um, the regular hotline person that would man the hotline in the office then someone was assigned, the phone would ring to a service, and then it would be connected to the person in their own home. Okay. And they had their own, they had county cell phones, so it wasn't like ringing their personal line or something. They would have a county cell phone um, or had their own personal second cell phone. That was actually a more common thing. Um, huh. And the county would reimburse you for 10 bucks. Um, <laughs> 10 bucks. 10 bucks a month, yeah. Um, but um, so so we were doing remote work 
after hours, long before the pandemic, people were doing <laughs> remote social work. And that's very disruptive because, you know, you have to have a private place. You can't have, a, you know, the TV going. You can't have your kids listening in, you know, coming in wherever you happen to be on the phone. You know? And so it's, it's very disruptive. And I think that people need to, people, the powers that be need to recognize that. So what are some uh, what are some ways you think government agencies and legislative committees can hold if they should hold the well, child welfare system or even child protective services liable and if needed accountable disperse? Well, I think liable and accountable are two different things. Uh, as mm-hmm. I said, we already have this federal system which says, okay, you know, uh, we have these goals, we expect you to meet them. If you don't. You're really off base. You have to write a special report, what you're going to do to get better. Um, liability is a whole different thing. Um, as a social worker, I had some, um, I forget the term, I'm sorry. I had some immunity. Um, okay. Because if I had to get into the job and could be personally liable for something that happened on my case, I, wasn't, I wouldn't do it. There's a lot of talk now about you know, making a police officers personally liable if they make a mistake, if they, um, and, and they're going to, you're going to, you have how many tens of thousands of police officers. My nephew's a police officer, but it's possible he could make a human error, a human error that could cause, mm-hmm. you know, um, some great harm, not intentionally or anything. But if you held him personally out liable, would he want to be a police officer? Probably not. If you, if you increase, if you have this, um, immunity, if you don't have this immunity, people will, will, will not take the job. You know, uh, I, in fact, I was sued a couple of times. Never, Nothing never came of it. I was named in lawsuits. Like, there's just, and, and then, you know, but uh, nothing ever came of it. But if I, had to, huh. if I had to put my home and my family at risk, I'd go, I would have gone into law. As I talk about in my book, I was tempted to become a lawyer. Um, oh, what? Right. Yeah. And so uh, if there was some personal, so people think, oh, we should hold social workers and police officers uh, with some personal uh, liability issue. Except for in very egregious situations, that should not be permitted because otherwise you will have people leaving the system. You will leave them in a bolt and and, uh, that's, that will not serve anybody. The turnover huh. that's high now would be very, very high if people would just, you know, be even more vacancies. But I, I kind of also want to talk about, you know, like we said, poverty, like child welfare system, kids tend to come from the, you know, the poor fifth of society. Um, you know, what, how, what are we doing for that? People who need help, who need social work, or need some government mm-hmm. assistance. How do those programs work? Um, one of the bugaboos I have about that is um, if, a, if a, say a mom has two kids and by two different dads and neither dad is in the home. One dad has a decent job and he's paying just regular child support. But the mom doesn't have work. She, she can't, she's on welfare. She can be on welfare for herself and the other child. The father on that case when his wages are attached to pay child support, they don't go to her. 
they go back to the government to reimburse the government for the cost of the cache that the mom is getting. That sounds uh -huh. superficially reasonable, okay? Uh, Dad, okay. Uh, Uncle Sam's paying for your child, so you're going to pay Uncle Sam some money to, to reimburse that. That sounds reasonable. That sounds uh, rational. But what that happens is that that guy, if he had a decent job, he would just be regularly being regular child support like lots of dads do. But he's on the margin society. If he has to huh. child support out of whatever he's making, that he's kind of like you know, working part-time or occasionally picking up work and working at the fringe of society, and, he, and a mm -hmm. chunk of his money is taken out, he's living way before the poverty line. That almost drives that guy into a criminal lifestyle to make ends meet. And further, he doesn't get any credit to the mom. You know, if he, um, she just, he's good for nothing for her. Um, it makes his relationship with the child worse. If his child support, whatever he pays, if say he's working just part-time job, that's all he seems to be able to manage, or he's making a women wage job, let that child support go to the mom. That hundred or $200 that, this, that would supplement her welfare would make a big difference. I mean, she doesn't go to the food bank as often. It means her kids can buy, you know, not have to go to the Goodwill to buy shoes for her kids and that kind of thing. And it just makes a better relationship. So when the dad visits, you know, the mom's not, you know, giving him a hard time because he's not getting any support. If she's, she gets the support, he's going to look at him more favorably. And even though it's... Huh. And the money that the government collects from this from the absent father, the absent parent, which ninety nine percent of the time is the dad, is such a small sliver. You can't find. I have never seen it as a line item in a budget. I've looked and looked and looked and looked because I wanted to find how much money it was for a book. I, I could not find it in a state or federal what? as a line item. Child support collected from the fathers to reimburse for foster, for uh, welfare. So we're not talking about losing, you know, huge sums of money, but it would make a dramatic uh, input if, you, if you're if you're living on eight hundred dollars a month, and, and you get another two hundred dollars. Your living standard is still poor, but it has made a tremendous difference. And that that parent, that mom, will be much more likely to be part of the mainstream society, and and just. Have a better outlook on life and less 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 likely to, you know, drown her sorrows in alcohol or drugs. <laughs> so if, she, if her life is easier because the child support comes to her and she's got a better relationship with the dad and her kids happier, the government is head in many ways. So that's what I would encourage the government to do as far as changing uh, welfare regulations. So uh, last question is. What what is the number one thing, or what is something that my listeners should take away from our interview today, that regarding the child welfare system and like child protective services, or anything within the child welfare system? Would you say? Well, I think the takeaway is that most of the time, we 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 make regional decisions, and that the system has improved, um, and that kids. We give a preference to relatives, to family. We give mm -hmm. a preference to trying to make a match if that's possible. Uh, but I also say that, that we make better decisions or we have better op opportunities if there's more uh, foster, if we have more foster homes to choose from for a child. You know, there may be one, that, there may be plenty of, if 
you, you just could match between personalities better or close to uh, location better. And also guardian ad litems. We need uh, those people who can come for and be lay people to help represent the child. They call them guardian ad litems in some states, called CASA workers in other states. We, we need more of those. Um, but we also need people who just um, want to come forward and help. Some very often foster family agencies will have people who can be provide tutors, people who want to volunteer. They're all their backgrounds are checked and everything, but people who want to help a child read. I had a very successful situation where uh, a tutor helped a child in foster care. So people can have that. But also that that is just one part of the larger social welfare system and that we need these things. We need a safety net in our society and the demands if we, the demographics are making this greater challenge. Um, and America's place is, is changed in the world. In the early 60s, during the war on poverty, America had 40% of the world's GDP, or the world's GWP. Now it's about 13%. Uh -huh. Now it's about 13%. So huh. that, that is affecting our ability to uh, exert political will in the, in the world. And we have, we, have a different, uh, we have a different reality because of that, because of that economic fact, and because of automation, because of lots of things. And so we need to have reduced the, the number of people who need government support. And there's ways to do that without spending a lot of money. Well, uh, to wrap this up, thank you, Lance Harrisoner, for coming on my podcast. And thank you for informing my listeners about all about the interesting, uh, not the interesting, but uh, the child welfare system and all what you encountered in the type of systems, the type of ways they can, the well, the government people like involved in it can improve it and everything. So thank you for coming on American Political Paradise, and I hope you have a great day. Thank okay, you. Thank you for having me, Noah. Bye. Bye. Oops. <laughs>